All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers, what the fuck buddies, what the fuck nicks, what's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How are you? I feel better. I don't feel 100%. I'm uh, close to, uh, I think, being all better. I don't know. You know, it's hard to know with the COVID situation. My tests are looking good. There's progress being made. I will test again this week and hopefully get a... Tomorrow, actually, maybe today. Today, I'll test again and maybe get the uh, the full neg. We'll see. We'll see. But uh, I am through the worst of it. I do believe Tony Kushner is on the show. He's a he's kind of a genius, a wizard, an intellect, and an artist. Uh, he's the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright of Angels in America, the musical Caroline or Change, and a frequent collaborator with Steven Spielberg, writing the screenplays for Munich, Lincoln, and now West Side Story. He's also the husband of Mark Harris, the film historian guy who I had on here. We had a good talk. And I asked Mark, is like, I said, is Tony in the other room? And he said, yeah. And now we talked, we talked a little bit about Mark this time. Anyway, anyways. This is a very thrilling interview, a very good interview. I was, uh, I was nervous. You know, I, I always, I never know if I can, uh, if I can hang with these uh, intellectual heavyweights. But I'm a big fan of a lot of his work, and it was a, it was a great conversation. That's coming up. I've been trying to, uh, to figure out a way that me and Guillermo del Toro can hang out again on the podcast and just, you know, talk about shit. So I had this idea that maybe I would um, I would ask him because I'm not a horror movie guy. I don't I just don't I don't like thrillers, I don't like suspense, I don't like horror. I, I get bored, I get frustrated or I get disturbed. It doesn't uh, it doesn't seem to work for me like it works for people who like it. okay? I, I don't frustrated, anxious, disturbed. I don't need those. I don't I don't need that from my entertainment. I really don't. And that's what people see horror as. It's primarily entertainment, right? And I know there's art horror movies. I get it. But I don't need those those elements, you know, frustrated, anxious, disturbed. I I don't I've got that going on now. That that's my baseline. I that's what I guess maybe for some people, horror and, you know, kind of uh slasher movies or uh you know, splatter horror and all that stuff. Maybe it has a riddling effect for some people. Maybe the horror on the screen sort of diminishes or 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 dampens or tempers the uh, the feelings that I have. But it doesn't have that effect with me. Yeah, you know, I watched this movie last night, the last one of the three that I was assigned by uh, Guillermo Kill List. And uh, by the time that movie was over, I couldn't sleep and I was terrified. And uh, I had to I keep a minor lookout. It's, it, I don't think it triggers the proper response. I don't have the correct sense of humor around horror or the correct appreciation of the genre or necessarily the ability to separate myself from the, the action on screen as being a reality of some kind. Uh, especially that one, because it's sort of grounded in a disturbing reality. You don't, you don't know right away that you're dealing with this it's a fairly traditional horror movie ending. But the other stuff you had me watch, I watched Haxen, which is a 1922 uh, movie. That's uh, I think it's Danish for witch. 
And uh, it's like half documentary, half uh, sort of cinematic exploration of medieval witchcraft, Inquisition witchcraft, how witches are treated. And then it comes into the current time being 1922 about how mentally ill people are treated. And in the past, they would have been witches. And now they're institutionalized, which is you know not great either. It was an interesting movie. And the composition and the narrative storytelling within the black and white stuff you know, the, the silent movie stuff was amazing. And apparently there's a 1968 version of it uh, that was n- narrated by Bill Burroughs, who I love. But uh, I was happy I saw that. The other one I watched was uh, Barbarian Sound Studio, which is, you know, a movie about a guy, a British guy who takes a job as the sound mixer for an Italian horror movie. And then it just gets weird at the end. It's some sort of psychological thriller that takes place during the making or basically the sound edit of an Italian horror movie, I guess like uh, uh, Argento movie, but I don't know any of those movies. And I think that this movie was just a, you know, you needed that as an index, as a point of reference. You needed to be somewhat of an Italian horror nerd or an uh, uh, Argento uh, nerd. So I don't know that stuff. And I found it a little tedious and a little boring. And I don't like movies generally where at the end of them, you're like, did he die? What happened? What did that light mean? Was he in the movie? As, or was the movie, the one I was watching, was that the movie or was it the movie that he was in? Did he, did, he, did he lose his mind and think he was in the movie? Did he die? What happened? That, that's not a great feeling to me. It's better than being terrified, but it is a bit frustrating. I can handle it, you know, from an art movie. I can handle it, but I feel like I missed most of that movie. So anyways... My, my foray into horror has made me realize three things. I think that in time I could appreciate it, but I do not enjoy what it does to me. Okay? Frustrated, anxious, disturbed. I'm, 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 I'm on top of that. I'm already doing that. I don't need more of that. Okay? And if you give me a lot more of it, it's not going to make mine feel any less immediate. It's not going to make it feel any less there. You understand what I'm saying? Do you? So, Tony Kushner is a, as I said earlier, a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. Angels in America, both parts, were masterpieces, amazing experiences theatrically for me. I think I saw the original um, cast in Angels in America, I believe. I think, was, was that Ron... Liebman as a uh, Roy Cohn, I think I did see that. It was uh, a it, it, you, it changes your life and your mind forever. I did see his musical Carolina Change when I was in the city, and uh, I loved it. But he's a very impressive thinker. He's a very impressive uh, artist, and it's a very specific type of art, playwriting, writing in general, I believe. And if you think about the movies that he did with Spielberg, Munich, Lincoln, now West Side Story. The dialogue's amazing and the storytelling is amazing and Munich's amazing and they're, they're all fucking amazing. This guy's a, you know, he's a heavyweight. He's a real deal and he's a great thinker and he knows stuff and I, I don't. I know a few things and sometimes when I don't know things, I'll, I say I don't know them. There's nothing wrong with saying I don't know, but you don't want to necessarily, you know, interrupt somebody to get a lesson about something you should probably just do on your own later. But with Tony, 
I don't know what Brechtian really implies. I know Bertolt Brecht. I don't have a conscious memory or understanding of many of his plays. I maybe have seen one back in college, but when something's Brechtian, I know it means something. So I asked. I asked. I think I asked more than that. But it was really a, a great uh, a great privilege to talk to Tony. We did this by Zoom. For one, I had COVID. For two, he's in New York. But I did watch both West Side Stories back to back. And you know what? They're both amazing. I don't remember seeing the first one. I must have seen it when I was a little kid because I knew a lot of the songs. But they're both really great. The West Side Story that Tony wrote... Uh, for Steven Spielberg is playing in theaters. He's been nominated for a Writers Guild of America Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. And we talk about all of it. Uh, you know, the whole thing. The Tony Kushner thing. All right, here we go. So Tony, what's it? What's happening? What, what's going on in New York? What's what's happening right now? In New York specifically, um, I don't know. Uh, Is it cold? Uh, it's cold. It's uh, the Omicron numbers are going down. Um, They're going up in my house. I ha- I have it right now. I am Omicron. Really? Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. Are you okay? I think I'm okay. I I mean I uh, I've been a little stuffy and a little tired, and I had to cancel some dates. But but I'm not, uh, you know, I'm triple vaxxed and, uh, you know, full of terror. And that seems to have been made. <laughs> made <laughs> I, I'm OK. I, I'm, I, I'll be happy when it's out of me. Yes. And I don't think you should be full of terror. It doesn't seem to really be up to very much. It kind of goes in and makes your head stuffed up and then it goes away. Did you get it? I have not gotten it. We've we've avoided it because we don't go anywhere. We stay in our apartment basically all day long and we don't have kids and we yeah are where we were antisocial before the pandemic started so we're so we're this has been of, like a literal a uh, heyday for for you yeah in some ways yes <laughs> yeah what what have you found has evolved over the last two and a half years in your relationship because of the pandemic i think it's actually been good for our relationship i uh-huh. mean i i uh we were both in pretty bleak terrible place when it started as everybody was and it was you know uh there were so many kind of apocalyptic warnings about what was going to happen in new york um it did get there it got pretty close well it it got very bad but there was you know in the in the weeks before it actually really broke out uh there were you know people saying that the whole social fabric would disintegrate and people would be murdering people on the streets (laughs) there would be no toilet paper you know really (laughs) Things would just be uh, terrible. Mark, who doesn't really like to grocery shop, went yeah. out uh, the weekend before and came home with like eight shopping bags full of meat, yeah. which we then tried to jam into our freezer because yeah. we were, he got convinced that there would be no more meat yeah. available. I think everybody got convinced that there would be no more something. And they did everything yes. they could to get as yes. much of that as possible. Wasn't there like a moment where there were no Fig Newtons? The panic was crazy. The, the, there were the no country. Fig Newtons and then no grape nuts. <laughs> I got concerned about the uh, b- about basics. I found myself buying a 10-pound bag of quinoa because I just saw myself eating some sort of quinoa mush for the duration. Yeah, you could probably get by on quinoa. That's what mush. I thought. Yeah. 
I mean, so we were we were like uh, freaked out at first. We we have a house in Provincetown, and we we packed up my sister and we fled uh, Provincetown and uh, sat out the first few weeks there, and then decided we wanted to come back to New York. I feel grateful to him because he gets nervous and also uh, has a kind of a darker worldview than I do, and expects terrible things to happen. So. He was ready for this before almost anybody else was. And, and I think that's one of the reasons we didn't get one of the more severe forms of this. I finally just surrendered to his uh, very strict protocols. So, you know, I, 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 I married the right guy and it, 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 worked, it worked out okay. And, you know, we've, we feel like we've gotten ourselves through this together. And, uh, you know, it's not the blitz. It's not, it's not. Yeah. But, but it was a, it has been a tough thing. And, uh, right. But that's interesting that you have these, these two different ways of looking at the world. I, 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 what, what do you think that is? Uh, cause I'm more like Mark, like I was kind of ready cause I'm, you know, I'm dreading everything anyways. So when, when it's time to activate, you know, especially, you know, something that's so rooted in anxiety, you know, I'm ready to go. You know, I'm like, you know, I'm on top of it. Yeah. You know, I'm like, I don't, I don't need paper towels. I'm going to buy a thousand dish rags and we're just, you know. but, uh, but you, what are you able to find hope on, on, on a day-to-day basis or what? I think I'm a little bit more optimistic than he is. Um, I think we kind of balance each other out. I mean, he can get uh, very quickly convinced that, that we are completely and totally screwed can I yeah. say? I don't know if I can say fuck. You can anyway, say fucked. Yeah, sure. They were they were really fucked, and yeah. uh, and I can. I'm not a, a denialist, but I I I have a, a kind of a fatalistic sort of optimism, and and I I feel like things tend to cohere rather than the opposite. So I I, I sort of believe that you know it won't be as bad as as Mark uh, thinks it will be, but. I admire people like Mark and you who, yeah. who sort of anticipated I was doing research a few years ago on a project that uh, was uh, had to do with Italian history and the Risorgimento in the middle of the 19th century. And I went to I was in um, Siena and I and I was meeting with a, a Jewish woman there who sort of ran the Siena synagogue. Uh-huh. Her family had left right before Mussolini started rounding up Italian Jews. and. Uh, I said, you know, why do you think he had that insight? And she said he was an incredible depressed, he was a clinically depressed man. Uh, and he took a train ride back from Germany with a Nazi and, and came home and said, pack up everything, we're getting out of here. And okay. they fled. So yeah. you know, sometimes it's a good thing to have that. All right, so, so uh, when does Mark say it's time for us to leave then? Well... <laughs> Since 2016, we've actually had a couple of those, you know, should we be putting, we don't have very much money, but should we be putting what we have in a Swiss bank is, you know, will we be able to get out quickly enough? Can we, yeah. will, will Steven Spielberg give us a, yeah. a a berth on his yacht? I mean, you know, is there a way to get, a, to get out of here? Um, yeah. He, so far, he hasn't uh, sounded that particular alarm that we have to get in the car and go to Canada, but, you know. Can you guys get into Canada? He's not Canadian, is he? 
I don't know. I always assumed that the Canadian, maybe because I've watched The Handmaid's Tale too much, but if we can get across the border, they'll let <laughs> yeah. us in. Well, I mean, I don't think any of us have tried, nor have we needed to try, uh, to get refugee status. So, nice. I, I, like, I, I imagine that will be the shift in border policy, is if you show up with your, all your vaccines or proof of having had COVID and a, a refugee uh, a request. Yeah, and then just like, you know, all those Brecht poems would be sitting on the border waiting for some asshole to decide whether you're going to get over the border or whether you have to, you know, kill yourself. It's, it's, it's scary. My brother is a musician in Vienna, and uh, his orchestra, the Vienna uh, Symphoniker, plays uh, during the summer in, on the Bodensee in this big opera festival called the Bregenzer Festspiel. And they have to, so he to get from uh, to the opera house, he has to cross this border crossing yeah. uh, in Switzerland. And it's the border crossing where all of these Austrian Jews tried to, you know, get out of, um, uh, through which all these Austrian Jews tried to get out of uh, Austria. Yeah. Yeah. After the Angelus. And so he's he's called me a few times during the darker moments of the Trump presidency and said, are you sure you don't want to come open up a bank account in Vienna? I mean, yeah. You know, wow. It's, I mean, it, you know, there have been moments when you think, sure, you know, I, I know. I know. I'm yeah. like, I'm like Ireland. I'm thinking Ireland. I'm a, like, I'm a Jew and I've got some sort of weird connection emotionally to Ireland for reasons I don't understand. And I, I fantasize about it, you know, but then I try to I try to kind of realize it's a fantasy. And I don't know that if I got to, you know, if I go to Ireland, that they're going to be like, oh, thank God you're here. <laughs> you know, finally, I'm sure they would welcome you. They seem all right. But I mean, then, you, know, you know, Leopold Bloom, it's uh, yeah. What am I going to do there? You I want to hear I, a good Irish yeah. Jewish joke? Yeah. So uh, uh, this uh, Jewish guy is is. Uh, this is during the Troubles, and he has to go across the border from the Republic of Ireland to Northern Ireland, and he he he's nervous, and he gets to the borderline, and he gets to the official thing, and then he's driving, and suddenly these guys with balaclavas and hats come out on the road with shotguns, and they stop his car, and they go up to the car, they rap on the window, and he rolls down the window, and the guy says, are you a Protestant or a Catholic? And the, the guy says, I'm Jewish. And the man with the gun says, yeah, but are you a Protestant Jew or a Catholic Jew? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good question. Yeah, that's funny. So, I, yeah, I, I'm just I, I'm I'm still panicky. I, I don't I, I can't get a I can't get a sense of what the world is really like from my phone. And my life is OK. But, you know, when you take in information, you know, how you contextualize it or how big you make it in your mind or what it represents, it's very tricky to figure out, you know, what exactly is happening. Yeah. And, you know, we're in the we're entering the third year of this. Um, if it, I mean, if it really if Omicron isn't sort of the, the thing that brings us to some kind of conclusion. I do think that there are reasons to believe that, you know, it has caused a tremendous amount of uh, of tearing of the social fabric. And there is some reason to believe that if it if it doesn't get uh, if I guess in return to some degree of normalcy and if people can't congregate and resume ordinary sort of non-digital relationships. Yeah. Uh, I mean, things have already gotten very weird and I think they're going to get weirder. It's a it is it's a scary time. And and what's happening in this country is, yeah. is terrifying so so what now on a day-to-day basis how how do you sort of 
what do you do? I mean, do you do you take in the news? Has any of this like, you know, with 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 COVID and with what you just said and sort of being in this moment, does that inspire you at all? Um, you mean the bad stuff? Yeah. Creatively. Creatively. Um, when it's really bad, no. I mean, or at least not in the immediate moment. I'm not somebody yeah. who who can take in terrible, terrible, you know, a really terrible news cycle and immediately process it in some way. Yeah. Um, I try to pay attention and I try and take notes and I try to keep track of uh, how the reality that's coming to me through yeah. uh, outside sources uh, jibes with my sort of fantasies of how, how reality ought to go and my theoretical understanding of history and reality. I mean, I know that that's a kind of a back and forth process. It's a dialectic that eventually will result in, in work. Right. Um, when I, when I write something uh, for the most part, um, I, I'm drawn to subjects that, you know, feel like they're of significance because they involve sort of agonizing questions that I don't know the answers to. Right. And these are very often political questions. Yeah. But, um, I've always been in awe of people like Larry Kramer, who, you know, in the middle of the AIDS yeah. epidemic, when things were really, I mean, you know, the pandemic is horrible and terrifying and it's global, which is a whole other thing, but it's not uh, lethal in the way that, I mean, even Delta and, and the first one, Alpha, yeah. was, it doesn't feel like the same death sentence that AIDS felt in the in the early years where if you were a gay man and you had sex and you you know were sort of sitting around wondering if you if your number was up and if you'd be dead in six weeks and and dead in a really horrible horrible way you know in the middle of all of that larry somehow yeah. took all of his rage and his anger and his frustration and having just been fired by gay men's health crisis and he turned it into the normal heart and I, I i was very close to larry for a long time and i i still don't understand how that was possible i don't know how people how he found the the will the will but also the clarity i mean yeah. there, you know it's it, normal heart is is a beautiful play and it's a powerful play it's also like a pretty insightful incisive analysis of like what happens to uh power structures and also conventional prejudices when they're confronted with a catastrophe i mean he really dissects it kind of beautifully and the the different characters i mean it's uh, uh the way that different people react to this horrific news and this horrific new reality i mean the tracing through of that is it's it's done so beautifully and with such incredible honesty and uh unsparing truth and you know it's so uh, you know uncle tom's cabin louisa may alcott i mean there are people who do that and it's astonishing when they do mostly it's sort of it seems like that template would be very effective you know as as a means to to take on even what we've been through over over the last six years absolutely i mean it's for me i need a little bit more perspective i need a little distance right. i started writing angels in america in the uh, around 87. how old were you uh i turned uh, I was 32 when I started working on it. Now, like, okay, so you decide to take that on, like, in, in, uh, you know, obviously the the vision that you had was was less personal than Larry's, I guess, correct? And it was a few years into the epidemic, right? right. So AZT had arrived already, 
Right. And things were a little bit more not good by any means, but there were tests. There was AZT. Things had the that terrible thing at the beginning in the early 80s where you discovered your first lesion and then you were dead a few months later. That that had sort of begun to stop um, when I began to think about writing Angels. And by the time I finished it in, in 1990, we were already, I think, pretty well on our way to the triple cocktail and and real transformation of the way the disease was managed. So, so in terms of your creative process, what do you see, you know, what needed to happen between sort of you and Larry, uh, not as individuals, but in his approach and your approach? What what how did the picture come into focus for you? Did you need did you need to your brain need to to create these characters or these you know? The- well, I mean, it sort of goes back to what we were talking about and the, the difference between me and Mark. Although this yeah. is not, I think, a difference between us as far as writers. There's a huge difference, you know. In in Virginia Woolf's Room of One's Own, she talks uh, sort of enviously. She talks about the Bronte sisters, I think, and Jane Austen and Shakespeare. And and just, I think maybe misquoting her, but I think that what she says about Austin is that there's this kind of, that the Brontes, uh, there's a, there's a rage in the novels of, of Emily and Charlotte Bronte. um, And that Jane Austen's work, I think she says is miraculous because it seems to have been written without any anger at all. And then she says, that's actually (laughs) maybe one of the things about Shakespeare that makes him the greatest of all is that it's written without anger. Um, I have a lot of anger, but I don't know that I find anger um, an enormously useful tool um, in in writing plays. Larry was an <laughs> anger artist. I mean, Larry was a, <clears throat> he could be yeah. delightful. He could be very sweet. He could be very funny. I talked to him once. I talked to I I, I when I was at Air America. You know when he I, he wasn't ill or anything. he he was old. I can't remember when that was. It was probably two thousand and three, I guess. Uh, uh, and uh, it was great. It was a great afternoon to talk. Yeah, to that no, guy. I mean he was he was amazing. He had great stories. He had. It was for that right? book, today's uh, gay man or today's <laughs> the tragedy right? of today's gays. Yes, yes that. <laughs> where, where where without my permission, he took a, an email that I had written to him. Oh, um, and used it as the blurb in the back of the book. <laughs> no kidding. Did you, you have to do that all the time? You could never write to Larry with any any trust. certainty that what you were writing was private. It would almost certainly if it had any if he thought it had any sort of like propagandistic proselytizing value, he, he would uh, he would use it. And and uh, um, he lives life in a very public way. So, yeah. You know. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I, I think I'm that kind of Jew uh, myself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the angry guy. But so you learned at some point that anger was not a good tool for you. Because like when, where did you get your chops? I mean, when, how do you, when did you start working out as a playwright? I I think, I, you know, I I grew up in Louisiana and I came to New York as a, uh, to go to Columbia as an undergrad. And yeah. uh I, the minute I got here, I started seeing every play I could see. Could see was that things. something you grew up wanting to do? I mean, uh, yeah, my mother, um, my parents were professional musicians, and uh, uh, what kind of music? My father is a Juilliard trained clarinetist, and my mother was uh, an Eastman trained bassoonist. 
she did. She was very successful. She was a uh, uh, first bassoon uh, of the New York City Opera when she was very young. Um, one of the first women in the country, I think, to have a principal chair. And uh, she recorded with Stravinsky um, on two occasions. And she uh, she was a great bassoonist. My father was a really wonderful clarinetist, but he had the misfortune of uh, of being the same age as Stanley Drucker. So when Stanley Drucker was emerging as the world's greatest, greatest clarinetist, he was taking all the jobs in New York. And my father um, wasn't getting enough work. So uh, my sister, who's a year and a half older than I, uh, was born deaf. And my parents freaked out about that a little bit, I think. And my father decided that he would move the family down to Louisiana where uh, he was born and our family had a little lumber business. And so we grew up in Louisiana and then- uh, In the lumber business. In the lumber, in a lot of Jews in the lumber business in Louisiana. It's it's a weird, but true have, thing. Have you have you sort of done a, a kind of personal history? Do you, I, how did the Jews get to Louisiana? Uh, Jews got to Louisiana um, through the rag trade, I think. Oh. I mean, they well, there are two ways. One was they arrived in New York and got a big bag of, trash of yeah. rags and sort of peddling it or pots and pans. And then all along the way, uh, in, the, in what they call the Southern Crescent, the, one of them would find a congenial town and eventually get a little department store and it would turn into a big department store. And uh, so like Maison Blanche in New Orleans, there's a, a chain called Muller's, uh, Neiman Marcus in Houston, and all the way through the South, there are these big department chains that were run by owned by Jews who had started out as rag peddlers. And I think they arrived in Louisiana that way. Also, they came through Galveston, some came through Galveston, Texas, which is near where I grew up. I've been told, I don't know if this is true, that uh, the Polish aristocracy, uh, which uh, really severely limited what Jews were allowed to do yeah. in the 18th and 19th century, 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, you could make vodka, you could be a tailor of some kind, you could lend money, of course. And uh, and supposedly they allowed Jews to mill lumber. Uh -huh. And I found a couple of references in Polish literature from the turn of the century of Jewish lumber mill owners. That's interesting. So it was either is either banking or lumber. Banking or, or vodka. It used to, I don't yeah. know if it's still true, but if you go to any Polish city, you could find a bottle of vodka called Jid Vodka. Yeah. And it Yid Vodka, basically. And it had this sort of anti-Semitic caricature of a Jew on the label. And it was, you know, <laughs> Poles would tell you, oh, this is the Jew. When there were Jews here, they used to make the best vodka. So uh, I think, you know, like all the, the Swedes came yeah. to New York and then they went to Minnesota because they somehow knew that that was great dairy country. I mean, people found places to replicate what they had come from. So maybe there are a lot of pine forests. Maybe the, yeah. you know, there are three or four big lumber businesses in Louisiana that were uh, founded by Jewish families and a very, very tiny one that was founded by my family, which no longer exists. But it's sort of interesting, though, because like, you know, the, the film business, too, it's always junk men or rag men. They're, you know, they're, it's a very vague title and you kind of get a sense of it. But, you know, how do junk men and rag men ultimately open all the department stores and create Hollywood? You know, it's kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah. Ferocious determination and intelligence. And Yeah, it's amazing. So. Yeah. All right. So you grew up in lumber, but was your dad a bitter man or no? No, um, he wasn't like me. He had a. Uh, I think I got my fatal optimism from him, fatalist optimism yeah. from him. I think, you know, he uh, he never gave up the clarinet. And then about 10 years after we moved down there uh, to Lake Charles, 
he was offered a job conducting a symphony in Alexandria, oh. Louisiana, and and he found his true calling. I think he was really a, a conductor, and oh, really? he he conducted both the Alexandria and Lake, Lake Charles symphonies, and he was great. He, he yeah. did a beautiful job. They were really wonderful orchestras, and uh, my mother was his first bassoon. And, and wow, uh, How's that they had worked a pretty, out. Good, a pretty good life. That's it. And they didn't have to. They just stayed in the lumber business and played music. He, yeah, I mean, he he went to the lumber business and yeah. added up numbers and came home. He really didn't care about it at all. Yeah. And I think he was relieved <laughs> when he finally could just sort of walk away from it. The Black family in Lake Charles that had been the foreman of my great-grandfather's uh, company when he founded the lumber company, and then the foreman of my grandfather's company were yeah. the father and then son of a black family called the Berard family. Yeah. And then their son uh, was my father's foreman. And my father eventually sold the lumber business to him and it became uh, the Kushner Berard lumber business. And then uh, I can't remember which hurricane it was. Now it wasn't Katrina. It was Gustav, I think, um, flooded Lake Charles and destroyed the lumber business. Uh. Yeah. So, that's a, a a classic American tale. Yeah, yeah. it's Ended weird. My hometown has sort of become the poster child uh, globally for climate change. It's it's it keeps getting hit by one superstorm after another, huh. and uh, and it's, it's having a terribly hard time. You can't you can't insure property down there anymore. Do you it's have really, people down there still? Uh, no, my father died in two thousand twelve. Yeah. Um, I have a few friends, uh, yeah. but um, then they're still there and they're struggling through, but it's, uh, uh, it's yeah, a it's hard right. place to be. Lake Charles is one of my favorite uh, Lucinda Williams songs. Yeah. She's one of our, one of our uh, yeah. wow. star alumni. What a song. So, okay. So you leave, you get out of Louisiana, you go to Columbia and you start just taking in theater oh, because- right. well, I was the reason I went to Louisiana is because when when my parents got there, my mother continued to play the bassoon, but she uh, she had a very uh, sort of large creative soul, and she decided to try acting, uh -huh. so she became an actor, and that's I think when my fascination with theater oh. all to do with Oedipus. Uh, right, I, I loved her, and I loved watching her on stage, and she was a sort of tragedian of the local little theater community uh -huh. theater, and. Uh, and I, I fell in love with theater, I think, because of seeing her play Linda Lohman in Death of a Salesman. Was she and, great? Uh, thanks. I, th I thought she was great. I really remember uh, Death of a Salesman. I was six years old, and I remember it really vividly. It's just a uh, brutal play, too. It is. And I had no idea what was going on. I, <laughs> the woman who plays uh, Willie Lohman's Chippy... Um, the lady in the hotel room yeah. who uh, Biff meets briefly. Right. Um, the the young woman who was playing that part had slipped and broken her uh, arm. So she had her arm in a cast. And I I thought that's why everybody in the play was so upset. I didn't know that Willie had died or anything. I thought they were really freaked out that she had uh, broken her arm. But the, A child's interpretation. Yeah. Very, it's very literal, like you, you, but you I do. Just... They did it in the round, uh huh. Um, and and so I could see the adults on the other side. And when my mother came out and did the speech by the graveyard, you know, attention must be paid, you know, yeah. And, and you foolish man, why did you do it? Uh, I could see all the people on the opposite side, I mean, people that I knew who were yeah. grown ups 
it was the early 60s so they had they didn't have waterproof makeup yeah and everybody had raccoon and i was just like <laughs> sobbing and that made an impression i knew something i didn't know what it was but i knew that she was doing something to these people that was pretty uh extraordinary and powerful and i got i think uh turned on by that i think that was it yeah that was it i I want to do that (laughs) a room full of running mascara a room full of weeping women with raccoon (laughs) who could ask for anything more Uh, oh god so when when you're coming up in new york i mean who like who were the playwrights that like you found were modeling your 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 perception um, I arrived at a really good moment. I came to Columbia in 1974, and it was, I think, this uh, there was this sort of extraordinary explosion of incredibly brilliant avant-garde um, theater artists. It's when Robert Wilson, oh. Letter to Queen Victoria and Einstein on the Beach yeah. with Philip Glass, was at the Met and in a Broadway theater. Yeah. Um, uh, Richard Foreman. Oh, yeah. Um, Joanne Acolytus, the theater group Mabu Minds with Lee Brewer and Joanne Acolytus, the performance group with uh, Elizabeth LeCompte and Spalding Gray and Willem yeah. Dafoe uh, yeah. before he became a movie star. Um, and uh, a whole bunch of other people who were just doing absolutely mind boggling, brilliant, radical things. Um, uh, and I think that that's where I was first. Uh, drawn. I was a very political kid, and I was not sure that theater was a dignified profession for somebody who really wanted to. I went to Columbia because I wanted, you know, I had been obsessed since 1968 with those pictures of the students taking over the president's sure, you know, yeah. low library and everything. And I, that's what I thought I was coming to. It wasn't like that by 1974. Um, but I, I was, I think, apprehensive about a life in, in the arts and in theater because it seems sort of trivial. And uh, uh, well, that's interesting, though, if I can stop you, like because it, it, at some point you didn't have any romanticization of like the people's theater or anything of the socialist theater of the I guess it would be the 30s that there that there was a relevance that 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 could have impact. You never thought that really. It's well, that's a complicated question, because I, you know, I mean, they had they had and hadn't had impact. I uh-huh. didn't feel in any in anything that I was reading that that um you know clifford odets or uh the group theater i mean they had sort of radicalized uh they had revolutionized theater uh, certainly in a way i've always had a big problem with clifford odets plays i mean i i hate to say that but what is the problem i don't think they're very good i feel i shouldn't say that (laughs) i mean i just i feel bad saying that um i really uh, like heavy-handed heavy-handed and not you know, if you're, I, I think if you're going to write about politics, your politics have to be really, really good. They have to, you have to really think through what you're doing. Uh, his analysis is not particularly. I mean, right. they're they're sort of allegorical in places where political theater should never be allegorical. I mean, or metaphorical or something. I mean, you know, that he tries to represent uh, economic processes right. through right. A, a boxer. Uh, <laughs> a boxer who was also a world-class violinist and right, you know it's right. like okay that, i get it but it's a little corny and once you figure out what equals <laughs> what you know as opposed to let's say death of a salesman which is shatteringly great and is a play that is absolutely about economics but it, what he what miller did was to find 
um, you know, a circumstance that was sitting out there for everybody to see a salesman who's about to be, you know, let go because he's not of use anymore. Uh, and, and, and he exposes the savagery and the cruelty of, of uh, the way working people are treated, of the way that we're all treated, the, the, right. the way that we're victimized by this artificial system that we've created. Um, and Death of a Salesman touches on many, many other, you know, really fascinating uh, political economic questions. But he does it by being absolutely true to what he's writing about. I mean, you know, it's that family is, except for the fact that they're Jews and they seem to have come from the West to New York. That's the only slightly odd, <laughs> yeah, odd thing. You know, I, I mean, just saw I, that uh, that other that one. I just saw uh, before the COVID. I saw the uh, what is it? View from the bridge. View from the bridge. Oh my God! It's so. Oh great. my God! Which I saw yeah. that with Letts. Tracy Letts was in it, right right before uh, the plague. And uh, it's devastating. Oh, it's it's astonishing, and it's 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 one place where Arthur really digs into issues about. Uh, I mean, it's very political. It's also sexual in a way, and yeah. gets into some really scary stuff. I love you from the bridge. I think it's. I mean, you know, the when he decided it was time to write Death of a Salesman, he he took his last nickel. And bought some lumber. He had purchased a little from writing TV things and stuff. He had purchased a tiny piece of land in Connecticut, and he built a little house, and then went into the house and wrote Death of a Salesman. And that's <laughs> that's the thing about Arthur Miller is he was also, I mean, he was a great writer and just as a playwright, a spectacular craftsman. I mean, yeah, in, in almost all of his plays, the minute they start, you sort of know you're in great hands. You know that you you know you just know. Not so much so with Clifford Odette. So, right. You know. So so Miller had a big effect on you. Yeah, not not initially. Um, uh, I mean, he did when I was a kid. I, well, I all, those it, but... all those guys you were talking about, like Foreman and Wilson, and uh, you know, I I've seen those plays and I've seen Foreman stuff and I've seen you know some of the like Spalding Gray stuff. I mean, yeah, I I guess when you're younger and you see that stuff, it, it makes you realize that there's no no real. You really decide your own limitations. Yeah, yeah. And that, um, I mean, all of those people worked in an incredibly complicated way in relationship to forms that had gone before them. I mean, there, there are, you know, all those plays that, that Spalding Gray did with Liz LeCompte, where each one was based on a great American long day's journey into night, or, you know, I mean, yeah. based, they, they, they had direct reference to specific works of American theater, and Spalding always presented himself as just a New York actor. Right. Um, I love Miller. I, I think the first person, uh, the first playwright that I kind of fell in love with was in a, I read him in a modern drama class at Columbia was John Guare. Uh, I read House of Blue Leaves. Yeah, I met and, that guy. Uh, I kind of know that guy a little bit. Yeah, well, I think he's, he's still a, around, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yes. And he's a very, very great playwright. I, I think uh, one of one of our best. Huh. And then Tennessee Williams came next. Uh -huh. And then I think Eugene O'Neill and then Arthur Miller. Uh, my big uh, obsession during my college years, and to some extent, I'd still say next to Shakespeare, probably the playwright I have the deepest uh, abiding affection for is Bertolt Brecht. I, I just... Uh, yeah, I don't know if I understand him or know exactly what characterizes Brechtian things. 
Oh, at some point we should, I mean, we probably don't have time to do that now, but I'd love to talk to you about it. It's a, well, no, he, he takes the fundamental truth of the theater, which is, I think, in, in everything that Shakespeare does, that, that you're confronted with, a. I mean, theater's power is that it is bad at making illusions. So you're, 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 you're watching something that isn't really believable. At the end of Hamlet, everybody's dead on the stage, but two of them at least have had a sword fight so they're panting hard yeah and that but if it's a great production of hamlet you're kind of annihilated at the end right emotionally yeah and that doubleness uh of of complete investment in the reality that you know to be artificial um is critical consciousness it's what it's what marx is writing about it's like how how do you see beneath the apparent surface of things to what really lies beneath. And, you know, Marx is poor. I mean, Freud would say it's the workings of the unconscious. Right. Uh, Marx would say it's, it's, it's the relations of capital. It's, it's the, it's the relations, human relations that have gone to produce commodity forms. Right. And, and what Brecht is all about is, I mean, he's basically just a very great playwright, but, but he, his theater is about sort of, um, privileging that moment of belief and disbelief so that you're always, you know, you're in it and you're out at the same time. I mean, I always think like a great example of it is just Jack Nicholson's entire film career because yeah. <laughs> he's, he, I just saw this outtake I'd never seen before online from The Shining where everybody's getting ready to, to do the scene where he's uh, breaking through the door of the axe. And all these uh, ADs are running around saying, you know, talking to Kubrick on walkie-talkies. And Nicholson is behind them looking completely insane, jumping up and down and going, it's murder today, murder today. And then he reaches over and he picks up this huge axe and starts swinging it. And they're all ducking while they're trying to get the set ready for the shot. And Shelley Duvall just sort of walks through, rolling her eyes and goes (laughs) in the bathroom and shuts the door. And he looks completely nuts. But... The thing that made him so makes him so incredibly great is that he has this weird ability. He's always in it and out of it at the same time. He's always in it and he's also commenting on it. Yeah, right. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it's uh, how an actor does that. There are just some actors that that really do. Some people lose, you know, go away completely. And there's not too many actors really that do it. No, no. But I think I think a lot of musical theater performers. I have I never got to see her on stage. I, I saw Zero Mostel briefly uh, do one do uh, one old revival of Fiddler. I never got to see Ethel Merman on stage, but uh-huh. I, when I listen to her recordings, she has that. Well, I think it's necessary uh, as a musical theater star in a way. Yeah, well, you're, you're you know, there's a formalism, there's an artificiality. Yeah, I saw your musical. I saw Carolina Change. Oh, great! Yeah, it was great. I enjoyed it a lot. I, you know, it, but that that sort of like it seemed a very personal thing. It's it's the most the closest to an autobiographical thing. It's dedicated to the uh, uh, woman that her name is Maudie Lee Davis. She's still alive. She lives in uh, Lake Charles, and she worked as a maid for my family uh, when I was a little kid, uh-huh. um, all the way till I left for college, and then she continued to work for, until my father died. And uh, uh, she's retired now, but she um, uh, I dedicated the play to her because Caroline is sort of loosely modeled on her. Yeah, uh, it's not a documentary sure. of, of things, but there are certain things that happen in the play that that happened to me and to Maudie. 
So yeah, it's very it's very personal. Did she see it? Yes, she did. I, when I finished writing it, I I was nervous about it, uh, so I sent it to her, um, and uh, I sort of wasn't sure that she'd ever read a play before. And yeah. uh, uh, but I called her and I said, "Money, I'm sending you this thing, and I'd like you to read it." Um, uh, it's sort of it's not about you, but it's loosely based on you, and I want to dedicate it to you. But and she said, "Well, that's so nice," and oh my god, and she said, "We'll send it." So I sent it. And she uh, immediately sent it to her daughter, Carolyn. Uh, Carolyn read it for her uh-huh. and then called her and said, it's very, it's very touching. And uh, Carolyn really liked it. Uh, so then Marty said that she was honored and pleased. And then uh, when it was opening at the public theater, um, I flew her and Carolyn to New York, and I was terrified. I didn't know <laughs> Tanya yeah. Pinkins, who played the part, who created the role. Yeah. When Tanya had her wig on, her 1960s wig on, she really looked like Marty. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't deliberate. It just happened to be that they looked a little bit alike. Yeah. And I thought, oh my God, what if she's really up? I mean, because uh, I made this character like I remember Marty yeah. being. She was she was different from a lot of the other uh, African American women who worked as maids. They put on this, you know, friendly mask because you had to. Uh-huh. She didn't really do that. She yeah. was <laughs> a kind of a tough uh, and often very angry person. And um, so that's I was fascinated by that then, and I wrote her that way. Um, after we, she she cried and she really loved it. She met the cast. Then we were in the cab going back to my place, and uh, she was in the middle, and I was on one side, and Carolyn was on the other yeah. side. And I said, "So, what, what what did you think of?" Um, she talked about the play, but she hadn't said anything about the character. I said, "What did you yeah. think of Carolyn?" And she said, "Well, I liked her. She would do anything for her kids, and I liked that." And I said, "Right." I said, "But do, you know." What about the angry stuff? Do you think is is that fair? Do you feel like that has any relationship to the way <laughs> you used to be before you turn into this very sweet old lady? And uh, when he said, "Oh no, no, I was never like that. I, I was never angry like that," and uh, I could see uh, on the other side, Carolyn was looking at her going, <laughs> "So I, you know, <laughs> of I got it right." Oh, good. You chose a musical to do that to to explore yourself like that. Yeah, it was it was one of the first when I was a sophomore in college, I decided that maybe I wanted to be a playwright. I didn't want to own it, but I began to get interested in the idea. And I I keep a journal and I wrote in my journal, if I can come up with 13 ideas for plays in one hour, 12 ideas for plays in one hour. Yeah. Um, I think maybe I can be a playwright. So I came up with 12 ideas and I don't remember what any of the others were, but one of them was they're really short little paragraphs. And one of them was. Um, an African-American woman who works as a maid in the Deep South and in some way is also president of the United States. And that's the only thing I wrote. Uh, and that stayed with me. And that, that sort of uh, San Francisco Opera um, hired Bobby McFarlane to do, uh, to write, to compose an opera. And he asked me if I'd do the libretto. And I wrote Caroline for that. And then Bobby decided he didn't want to write an opera. He he played around with it, but he decided he was a jazz musician and not really an opera composer. Who? Bobby but, McFerrin? McFerrin, Mc, right. Yeah. And I, and so he, he gave me the rights to the libretto back. And then I went to George Wolfe and we went to Janine Tesori. And then that's it. I think because my parents were musicians, 
it it was something it was a I didn't think I ever really wanted to you know I mean they say that Tennessee Williams really made life hard for himself by starting his career by writing Glass Menagerie yeah O'Neill waited till practically the end of his career to write Long Day's Journey but something really by autobiographical always seemed scary to me right um, maybe because it was going to be a musical and my parents were musicians it felt like it would be the right moment to dig yeah but also like you know you when you think about you know o'neill it's like you, you, it doesn't sound like you're not you're going to go down a tunnel of darkness for you know how dark is it going to get for you oh i wish i could get that dark i mean he was the greatest <laughs> yeah you know i mean yeah. he was uh, he was but i mean autobiographically speaking maybe this oh, was yes, i'm glad i didn't have his family That's... <laughs> yeah have you ever visited the house if you're no, no. If you're if you're ever on I-95 between like New York and uh, through Connecticut. Yeah. Um in New London, Connecticut is the Monte Cristo cottage. It's the cottage that his father who was an enormously successful actor bought and it's the cottage in which Long Day's Journey uh, is set in 1912. Oh wow, yeah, and yeah. It's a national historic uh registry landmark. Uh. It's run by the Parks Department, but it's really weird because it's it's not, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, some sort of big mountain range or something or a beautiful forest. It's this terrifying house where four people, you know, ate each other, basically. And it's, it's the one of the weirdest national wow. landmarks in the United States. It's absolutely worth a visit. It's, oh, yeah, okay. uh, it's, it's, and you can just, the minute you go in, the unhappiness is still there. I mean, it's just, uh, you can feel it in the wood. Oh, you really can. It's a spooky, oh it's a my spooky God. place. So the whole journey of, of angels for you, you know, one and two, I mean, that was like how, how long a period of your life, like a decade. Yeah. I started in 87. I finished, uh, part one in around 88, 89. It yeah. opened at the national in London in 1990. I had a, uh, already written a very rough draft of the second part. The uh, first part, I think, eventually, uh, then it came to went to the Mark Taper Forum, and then it came to Broadway by '93, and then in '94, Perestroika opened, and then the national tour went on. So yeah, it was about eight or nine years. And that was like, but but that was your like the the first big play, and it was huge, and it's like eternal. It was huge, and it's never. It's always going to be huge. Well, you know, can I hurt, can I hurt, poo, poo, poo. <laughs> All I care is that it outlasts me. Yeah. After that, it's on its own. But. And when you when you put that together, I mean, were you able to see, you know, like when you talk about like a thoroughness of, of character or being true to, to, you know, who they are and what's happening in, in the play, like, and it seems like, you know, when the angel comes down, that's spectacular. That, you know, something enabled you, you know, to, to sort of, like, conceive of that. Well, right? I had a dream. It was a dream. Okay. That's, that's how it started. Uh, <laughs> right. The first guy that I had known personally to die of AIDS, I was doing a year residency in St. Louis on a National Endowment of the Arts Fellowship in directing. And I got word that this dancer named Bill, who I'd gone to graduate school with at NYU, uh, had just died. And I was sad about that. And I went to bed that night and I had a dream that he was in his pajamas on his bed and looking terrified up at the ceiling, which started to bulge. And uh. then it cracked open and an angel uh. came into the room. And, uh, wow. 
And then, so there, so there, there it was. Um, that's amazing, right? I didn't know that. I'm sure you, uh, that's out there to know, but because that moment in the, in the show is like, dev, it's just overwhelming. I, I, that was supposed to be the intermission of a three hour, two hour, two and a half hour play. It didn't work out that way. It, it wound up getting longer. Yeah. Than that. I feel like uh, we all contain multitudes, and sure. sort of one of the things that you try to do as a writer is is loosen the the stays that uh, the internal stays that that hold you together as a person just enough so that stuff that ordinarily in everyday waking life you would uh, keep securely locked away. You kind of loosen the hinges and the doors a little bit and things start oh, that's to nice. come out. And That's a good way to look at it. So when you, like the one thing I, I like when I was thinking about, like I watched your West Side Story or in Spielberg's and then like, you know, an hour later I watched the other one. Like, so I was able to really kind of see them both like that, you know, to see, because I didn't remember the original. I think I saw it when I was a kid. And, you know, like I wanted to see what, what stayed and what went and what, you know, what was different, you know, and they both are, are pretty spectacular, you know, on their own. Right. So when you take a, when, when, when Steven Spielberg asks you to do this, as he's asked you to do other movies with him, I don't know. I, I assume they were different, but I mean, what's the first thing you do in, in terms of like, how are you going to reboot this thing? What do you think? Like, do you say to yourself, like, well, look, the race issue is there, but the class issue, the class issue is unexplored? Well, in a certain sense, that is where Steven started. I mean, the first I said, why do you want to do this? Because we both love the 61 film very much. Yeah. Um, and I said, why do you want to do it? And he said, you know, I, there were a few things that he was interested in. The fact that cameras are so much more mobile now. You can move them around. You can, you know. Technical stuff. Technical stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, that uh, things that, that really get Stephen excited. Yeah. Um, uh, he wanted to approach, he wanted to do a musical. He's always wanted to do a musical, and it's arguably the greatest musical. Um, but he also said, you know, I, I feel like these are street kids and they're very poor. So he, we began talking about poverty and poverty as being this kind of, uh, along with racism and xenophobia, poverty is 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 kind of the overarching uh meta villain of of the tragedy yeah and that led me to start researching the area that these guys were writing about where i live right now lincoln square what was called Lincoln so that, square. like is it like isn't it a robert moses development yeah there was right. uh, in 57 moses and the committee for slum clearance um won two supreme court cases and and blasted away a gigantic part of the west side Part of it was a real slum that was primarily inhabited by the left behinds of uh, earlier generations of European immigrants that had come and sort of left their mentally uh, challenged and and uh, the, the sort of criminal element and yeah. uh, drug addict and so on were left behind. And they were living in these kind of derelict brownstones. The top of the of Lincoln Square was called San Juan Hill, not because it had anything to do with Puerto Rico, but it had been called San Juan Hill for a long time. I think I finally figured out why, but that's another story. Uh, why? I can't prove this, uh, but people don't know where the name came from. It was an African-American neighborhood from about the teens uh, into the 40s. And then when Black people started moving up to Harlem, they began renting these 
their apartment buildings that they owned to Puerto Ricans who were just arriving in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And um, but they'd always called it San Juan Hill. And I have no way of proving this, but uh, the the Rough Riders, when they wrote up San Juan Hill, which is in Cuba, is one part of the story that I forget the name of the hill next to San Juan Hill, but there was another hill held by the Spanish that had a fort on it that was protecting San Juan Hill and the fortress atop San Juan Hill. Uh, for the Rough Riders to be able to get up the hill, they had to first, somebody had to take the adjoining hill and, and uh, you know, sort of neutralize the fort. And the people who did that, there were a couple of, uh, of garrison uh, of, uh, platoons that did it, but one of them was an all-Black U.S. Army infantry squadron, and they uh, they stormed the fortress and took that hill. And uh they were, of course, then completely written out of history. It was right. all about the Rough Riders and Teddy Roosevelt, who were all white, charging up that hill. But the black people that had made it possible were forgotten. And I have no way of proving this, but I really wonder, because the timing seems to work out, if the veterans from right. the Army veterans who felt themselves to have been great American heroes, as they right. were, yeah. forgotten, decided to name this neighborhood that they were moving into and maybe buying real estate into with their pensions yeah uh if they, if they decided to call that neighborhood san juan hill and then well, it became a puerto rican neighborhood so I, that i that i think that's pretty good speculation i i don't know maybe good Who research knows? good good connections i i thought i thought maybe that's the uh you did the good the you, you did the good thinking on that <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> so okay so you you decide to set it you know very specifically in this wreckage in the wreckage and which became, you know, I think a really significant sort of uh, aspect of the film that, that people, yeah. I love anything about a scarcity economy. I love, I love movies, books, plays mm-hmm. where an artificial scarcity is created and, and, and the people that are fighting uh, that are sort of set against each other to compete for the very little bits of usually not very valuable, whatever, uh, that's that's left because of this artificially created scarcity. Uh, the fighting becomes more and more violent and ugly. Yeah, and I think because there's a real enemy that isn't present where the actual power lies, and uh, and I think that frustration amplifies the fight between groups that don't really have anything to fight about. And in this case, you know the the these little white racist street kids. And this kind of neighborhood protection group, the sharks, who are yeah. trying to keep their neighborhood together. So, so that's how, so that's how you conceived of it. And it's it's interesting, like watching them both side by side. Is that a lot of the race stuff and the xenophobic stuff is really in it, you know? And 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 a lot of the, the, the it's very uncomfortable. And once you, I, I guess you know, once you get past the blackface stuff. Uh, which is, I guess, the nature of movies at that time. You know, the dancing and the tension and and the emotions of it are all there. But like, what I what what really happens in your version is that there's a depth to it that connects them all. Like, you don't there there's not the same. You know, outside of like this neighborhood's always shitty, but there is something like you're saying. There's something bigger than them that's setting this. You know, in motion. Yeah. And it's it's not addressed by them specifically. Maybe a little bit with the women singing their understanding of a a, 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 a possible future that's that's false, or or even their understanding of what's really happening seems the most grounded understanding politically in the whole in the whole piece. I mean, I I think I'm really glad that you said that because I think that 
I mean, I felt like what we were doing the whole way was taking, you know, I think the musical, the original musical is a masterpiece. I think it's yeah. a, a great work of art. And and all the things that we wanted to talk about and deal with and that we did talk about and deal with and, and address in the movie that we just made, I think are latent and uh, and and latent but present in one way or another yes. in the original Broadway musical and in the 61 film. And so it felt like we had a, a new opportunity to look at it and to sort of draw some of those things. We got permission from everybody and support to do that. And, and, uh, and, and I thought that the decision to uh, have no subtitles, I think was good. And I think that white, good, pe I'm glad. I think I'm glad white people deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> I sort of feel that way too. Also, practically speaking, uh -huh. Puerto Rican Spanish, you know, is, is filled with English idioms. So you, you'd have a hard time, I think, subtitling. It'd like be, you know, that there are people who are struggling with whether or not they want to speak Spanish or speak English, and they can speak both. So you'd be popping into subtitles all the time, and it would, and it also sort of then makes English the official language of the movie. And I think it, you know, yeah, I've been enjoying uh, how freaked out people on the right, like on Fox News, were that this is uh, there's unsubtitled Spanish in the film. So stay away. Because if you go, you won't have any idea what was what's going on. Because Are they, they really doing that? Yeah, there was a real sort of like, oh my god, this is woke culture taking over, and it was like, yeah, you know, don't panic. Steven Spielberg is not going to make a movie where huge numbers of people have no idea what's going on. Just go and you know. And, yeah, and, I, 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 I got it. I, you know, I, I'm the same way with Shakespeare. To be honest with you, I get the idea. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I, can't exactly. I, don't, I don't know what really they're talking about, but I understand the story. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll be okay. You'll, you'll, exactly. You'll catch up. Yeah. Now, what was your biggest fear going into it around, you know, taking this work? Yeah, see, what you, how, who do you get permission from? Jerome Robbins? Who do you get permission well, Steven, from? Uh, Steven got permission from the Jerome Robbins estate, the uh, Leonard Bernstein's three kids, Alex, Jamie, and Nina. Um, and uh, Arthur Lawrence's estate, uh, this man named David Saint, who was uh -huh. Arthur's partner, and then Sondheim. Um, and uh, they all had to pre-approve me as a screenwriter. Uh -huh. I, I know the Bernstein kids, and I knew Arthur Lawrence and David, and I knew Steve Sondheim for a really long time. So that was pretty easy. But they, they gave Stephen permission um you know, they, their uh, Sondheim at least was very, and Arthur Lawrence and I think Bernstein were fairly critical of the 61 film. I don't think they were fair about it. I think they were a little grouchy uh, and unfair. But, really? But they were, they were not, yeah, famously Arthur Lawrence, when he finished watching the movie for the first time, said, wow, that's a really tough gang of ballerinas. <laughs> so. Uh, you know. uh, what are you going to do? But, uh, but we got permission. Dancing is dancing. Dancing is dancing. And you know, they were great. Know. I mean, they all the changes that I proposed, uh, giving Rita somewhere. Oh, Rita was great. But, you know, I thought that was really the, 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 the most interesting story point that, you know, that you sort of were able to dig into was to give that that kid the lead, you know, a backstory. There's, there's no backstory. In, in the yeah, I mean, in 57, they, uh, you know, they were making, they were doing a lot of radical things with West Side Story that nobody had ever done before, bringing a type of person on stage that had not been brought right. on the Broadway stage before, and making a musical tragedy, which no one had done before. I mean, uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein made sad musicals, 
but they really wanted to follow Romeo and Juliet and make a tragedy. And I think yeah. they succeeded. Um, so with all of that that they were doing, and, and also it's a dance musical, it's sort of driven by dance, uh, with all the things that they were trying that hadn't been tried before, they they made a couple of concessions to convention. And one of them was that the the boy and the girl in the A plot had to be good kids. They couldn't be juvenile delinquents. They had to be from good families and nice kids. And then everybody else could be tougher and rougher. And we don't need to worry about that anymore. So, Well, to the point where there was like outside of him deciding to work, you know, as opposed to be in the street. I mean, that's all you got yeah. with that kid. And she was, you know, young. So there was no, yeah. but, but I, th- I just thought the, ba- the backstory was, was compelling to have that, that inner struggle, you know, with himself. Yeah. Well, thanks. I, I, I felt it worked really uh, well. How did the, the thing with Spielberg start with you guys? Uh, I, when Angels in America, Mike Nichols' version came out on HBO, uh-huh. the minute you have anything happen on, you know, a movie or a TV show or something come out, you get calls from producers who say, "Let's have breakfast." Sure. And I got a call from Kathy Kennedy uh, saying, "Let's have breakfast. I'm going to be in New York, and I'd like to meet you." And uh, you just meet and you have breakfast, and you, they say, "What are you doing?" And you say, "What are What are you doing?" And uh, I said to Kathy, what are you guys working on? And she said, we're working on two for you and Stephen. And she said, we're working on two films. One is uh, about the murder of the uh, Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics in 1972. And the other is adapting Doris Kearns Goodwin's book, forthcoming book, Team of Rivals, about Abraham Lincoln. And I said, those are great projects. Yeah. And then uh, right as we were about to leave, I said, you know, uh, I just published, I, I edited with a friend, Elisa Solomon, uh, an anthology of essays about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict called Wrestling with Zion. And I said, I'm really proud of the book. And if you guys are going to make a thing about the Munich Olympics massacre, uh, maybe you'd find stuff of value in it. So if you'd like, I'd be happy to send it to you. And I did. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's the end of that. Yeah. And then about two weeks later, I got a phone call. It was Spielberg. And he said, I just read the essays and I really like them. And I'd like to talk to you about this script. And we got together. He, he sent me the script. I read it. We talked about it. And then he said, would you like to try and write your own version of it? And I said, yes. And now we just this summer finished our fourth movie together. So it'll be coming out in uh, Thanksgiving. Which that movie is that? It's about his childhood. We wrote it on Zoom just like what we're doing now. No kidding. Uh, uh, during lockdown, we wrote it. It's the fastest thing I've ever wrote. We co-wrote the script together. It's about Stephen's uh, uh, childhood and his sort of the beginnings of his- uh, Oh, really? Of him running around with his Super 8 camera? Yeah, Super 8 camera and then 16 millimeter. And and it's also about his parents and his parents' marriage falling apart. And it's- oh, uh, Interesting. Uh, Michelle it. Williams and Paul Dano are in it and, and Seth Rogen. And it's- uh, I'm very excited about it. Wow, that's amazing. So uh, he finally does an autobiographical picture and he, he needs you to, to help him out. I, I was like his, his shrink. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's a good question about like with Munich. I mean, what, what, was, what was the challenge characterologically? And, you know, because, I mean, you seem to be you know, driven by dialogue. You like people talking. So yeah. what did you need to show with that? You know, I was in Hebrew school when that happened. I was like nine years old and I remember when it happened. And I remember there being this weekly magazine we used to get at Hebrew school about all those athletes. So yeah. what, what was it that you needed to 
what was it that, you know, with what you were saying before about forces and about people, you know, at odds with each other in, in situations that are either control. So what was it with Munich where you're like, I'm going to do this project because this needs to be seen? What was it? Well, I, I was, um, I, I didn't know why Stephen wanted to uh, go into this incredibly dark uh, um, event and this sort of terrible moment. Um, I was nervous that it was going to be, uh, that it would demonize um, the um, Palestinian people. <laughs> that was, you know, I, 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 of course, think that what was done to the Israeli athletes, the Olympics was horrendous and, you know, inexcusable and unforgivable, uh, monstrous uh, act. But I believe that uh, you know the plight of the Palestinian people is a is a world historic calamity. Then and uh, and as a Jew, I support the existence of the state of Israel. I'm very much identified as a Jew, and I also think that the way that the Palestinians have been treated is un- unforgivable and inexcusable. And and violence begets violence. And I you know it was also right after 9/11. And I and uh, so I thought there was a lot of um, Room for exploration. Uh, the 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 movie addresses Israel's decision to eliminate um, ostensibly the the planners of the of the massacre, but in the process they also got rid of most of the um, people who they deemed as being um, uh, important uh, people in the PLO, um, and uh, and they chose to do this in violation of a huge number of uh, international treaties and, you know, sort of setting aside the rule of law. And uh, so I thought that was an uh, interesting thing to look at and the idea of these Jewish Mossad agents who were essentially assassins going around and, you know, and planning it. Um, I thought that was fascinating. Uh, Eric Roth had written a version of the script that I thought was really good. Um, uh, And, you know, I've always admired Stephen as a filmmaker uh, enormously, and and I thought, well, you know, it would be an interesting thing to explore with him. And yeah. uh, and I was taken by how dangerous it was for the guy that made Schindler's List and who is you know be- uh, a Jewish filmmaker beloved by Jews to take this on, and not. And I was very uh, impressed uh, that I didn't need to like sell him on the idea that this is not a um, a situation of like you know. Uh, uh, the Israelis um, are the good guys and win. The Israelis are the good guys, and the Palestinians are monsters who, you yeah. know, who, who, who are subhuman, evil people who, for some reason, can't leave us alone. Um, so I wanted to see. Uh, I wanted to become part of his process of exploring that, and 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 you know, I was stunned. I'm always stunned with Stephen because he's such a complete master of, of the art of filmmaking and of the art of st- storytelling. I mean, he's like, not since Dickens has there been anybody, I think, more profoundly uh, gifted at, at the construction of narrative. Um, and he's an incredibly generous collaborator. He he really invited me in. He kept me on set the whole time. And, Did you argue? Oh, we argued terribly. Yeah. Uh, probably a little bit less on Munich than with Lincoln, where we really... <laughs> What were those arguments about? Oh, about everything. I mean, oh, really? And, and I lose a lot of them, and I also win some. 
Um, and uh, what was the big problem? What was the struggle with Lincoln? There's never like just one thing. Yeah, there are always you know there were just subtleties and complexities uh, in the situation. I mean, there it's it was. I wrote a 500 page draft, first draft, yeah. that covered from January to April of 1856, 1855, and I thought Stephen would film the last month at the end of the war when Lincoln was down at City Point with yeah. Grant. What he wound up filming was the first part, which was the fight for the 13th Amendment. And I think it's a brilliant choice that he made just to focus on that. But when we did that, we wound up making a movie about the House of Representatives. And yeah, in a world where the Democrats are the bad, reactionary, horrible people yeah. and the Republicans are the progressive, liberal, decent people. And keeping track of all of that was hard. And there are lots of things... Stephen also doesn't like to rehearse and he he can get excited when actors improvise and I hate it. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> we've always had a big struggle uh, about that. I, I want them to stick to the script. And, uh, and in, in Lincoln, sometimes, you know, this is not about an actor. I, like I was watching and I think I made a pest of myself that day about 600 other little things. And I went running onto the set. I watched from Video Village and I ran on the set and I said, Stephen, you've got to stop for a second. We've got to change something. And he said, well, I don't want to change it. We're, we're behind. I want to keep going. And I said, no, they were packing up Lincoln's office. It was a scene where they're packing up the war charts because the war is essentially over right before he goes to the theater and gets killed. And they're putting things in a box that had been marked uh, for the National Archives. And I said, you can't do that. The National Archives were founded in 1932. Yeah. So you have to get rid of that box. And there are you know, little things like that. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. I won't tell tales out of school. Yeah. But the great thing about him is he really, with West Side Story, we had a lot, uh, a ton of things where we were, you know, I, I, you know, where we were trying. I mean, I think the reason it turned out as well as it did is that we, everybody involved was constantly just slightly adjusting things to make sure that we were telling a, a, as rich and full and true a story as we as we could and uh, it's great it's such a it's great it's such an aggressive collaboration yeah it's it it, it is it doesn't it, i mean i've known him now for a really long time and i love him as a person and uh and i you know i feel it like it's, it's an incredible privilege because i think he's sure. kind, i mean i don't use this word very often, but I really do think he's a genius. And yeah. uh, I think he's capable of doing things. When you work with him over and over, he'll come up with some shot or some image just out of the thin air, it looks like, and you can't understand where it comes from. It's, it's, and he wow. doesn't always explain it well. Who decided to, uh, to make uh, Lincoln 20 feet tall? <laughs> I think God decided that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's an amazing thing to say. It reminds me of that moment where, um, on a much lesser scale in some way, uh, because it's a different medium, where I don't know if you watched the uh, the Beatles documentary. Oh, God, that was... Where, where, where Paul's just amazing. sort of like pulling Get Back out of the air, you know, and you're like, that's it's happening right now. It's happening. And, there, and what I love is he's sitting there at the piano just... He's playing, get back, and then he's sitting there playing Long and Winding Road. Yeah. 
or let it be. And they're all rolling their eyes and making fun of it. And even he's making fun of it. It's like, well, wait a minute. This is like one of the greatest songs ever written. And it's (laughs) happening. What what I'm really curious about, and nobody's been able to explain it to me, is Get Back was clearly um, about uh, nativism. And I mean, you know, because at one point McCartney says, uh, some of the, uh, well, the Pakistani, da, 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 and then there's also somebody's a Puerto Rican, and so it's clearly about immigrants, not or in the case of Puerto Ricans, migrants not being welcomed somewhere. And get back was get back to where you once belonged, and and you hear it, and then in one of those moments when they're not on camera uh, and they break up for a few days, they come back, and it's turned into a song about nothing. Except Beatles, nothing, which is better yeah. than anything. Yeah. <laughs> you want to hear one great thing that I found out um, uh, in, um, oh God, what's the song? Uh, you know, here come off that top, he come grooving up some. Uh, come together. Come together. Um, I, I just read, I hope this is true, that Lennon came up with that uh, when Timothy Leary, who was running for governor uh, against Ronald Reagan, uh, asked Lennon to write him a campaign song. And he came up with a song and Leary, for whatever reason, wasn't yeah. organized enough to make use of it. So it didn't get... Oh, that's I, hilarious. I, I love that. Because then you know who old Flattop must sure, have been. Yeah. Come old Flattop. Oh, that's interesting. It's clearly Ronald Reagan, right? Oh, I wonder if that's true. I think it would be... I want to write a film or a play where Leary takes the song and it becomes his campaign song, and he beats Reagan for governor. It was Reagan's first successful campaign, and he beats Reagan. So Reagan just goes back to being a G spokesman or whatever, and he yeah. really just leaves the American political stage. And the entire history of the United States after that is <laughs> all free of Reaganism. <laughs> we, we stay on course, and we become a bigger and better and healthier democracy. That is an amazing hallucination. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice? Yeah. So this this discomfort with improvising now is this something like like because there's a big chunk of time between you know columbia and angels you know how was that was that was that wrought with difficulty in in becoming a playwright because of of behavior that you may have had you mean well i mean were you difficult i oh i am difficult i'm a horrible person (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Ask any of the directors who've worked for me. I'm a nightmare. Um, yeah. Now, you know, I mean, uh, it took me a while. I went to graduate school to be a director. I think I was okay. afraid to be a writer. Okay. Writing is hard. Writing is scary. And I couldn't quite believe that I'd be good at it. And I'm actually an okay director, a stage director. I don't have any idea how to direct a movie. Uh, but I'm I'm okay. I'm not, I'm, yeah. I'm not really great at it. Uh, and I think... I went into directing because it was a way of sort of coming into playwriting through the back door. Um, it uh, was it helpful? Yes, uh, the WRIGHT part of playwriting. It's there is a part of this that, as I was saying about Arthur Miller, is really craft. It's really like cobbling together a skeleton that will hold this event together, and uh, and you have to learn, I think, a certain amount about how actors work. Yeah. And, 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 you know, you learn if you spend time with actors, with really good actors, um, and you see what they're struggling with. You learn some of the, they're not, none of it is rocket science. It's all pretty simple, but you learn what, you know, 
anybody who comes out on stage comes out to do something. At least this is true in narrative realist drama. You come out on stage to have an action, to do something, and uh, you either succeed or you fail. You run into somebody who doesn't want you to have you know, that, all that <laughs> stuff. But it's it's amazing to me always how many people who act and many people who direct and sometimes even people who write don't quite get that that's where the drama and drama comes from. And it, and, uh, what, the doing need, things? Yeah, that, you, that action. You, yeah. need, you need an action. And, that, and also that speech is action. Right. Um, which is why I get annoyed when people improvise, a, a little annoyed. Yeah. Um, we just made this movie with and Seth Rogen was on the set and Stephen kept teasing me before we started. I'd never met him before. And Stephen said, you know, Seth Rogen, it's like, he's going to be Mr. Improv. I mean, he's not going to do a single line that we wrote. He's going to make it all up. And I thought, well, at least he really knows how to improvise, which most people don't. And uh, Did he? Not, he was word perfect <laughs> the entire time. He was probably terrified. No, I think he just, he said, I really like the script and I really want it. I can, you know, I can do my thing with my stuff and I wanted to come here and really honor the thing, uh, you know, and yeah, and, and explore it. And oh, was, I'm excited, great. excited about the movie. Loved the, uh, loved West Side Story. It was a great. Oh, well, thanks, Mark. Thank you very much. Great talking to you. Say hi to Mark for me. I will. Well, this has been a lot of fun. It has. Um, take care. All right. Take care. Wow, that was rich. Is that the right word for it? Nice, rich, deep, thoughtful, and uh, and it was uh, made my brain go all the places. West Side Story is playing in theaters now. I would go see it. It's pretty great. Um, so that was fun. Tony Kushner. I'll just I'm just gonna whip out some guitar. I'm gonna whip it out. Here we go. Fonda, cat angels everywhere.